Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Andrew Herman. And if this is your first time here, let me tell you a little bit about what we're doing. We're talking about art technology and the intersection between them. But mostly, we want to talk about why you should care about this stuff. I've been on both sides of this coin as a startup founder, an engineer, a creative, and I'm just fascinated by the world where art and technology overlap. So I'll be talking to artists, collectors, CEOs, and founders, anybody who has any perspective on this world I want to talk to. This week is a really interesting episode. We've been talking to a lot of artists lately, but we're going to take a little bit of a a step back and get back to our roots a little bit and talk to a man by the name of Paul Golding. Paul is a computer scientist and algorithmist. He's deep in the world of AI and blockchain. Uh, He was a chip designer, wrote the book on mobile before mobile technology was a thing. But most recently, he's worked on some really interesting questions around why do people like what they like when it comes to the art they surround themselves with? This is always something that people, you know, pontificate and like to theorize on, but it's a very different question if I'm just asking you on the street versus talking to a computer scientist who uh, is trying to use artificial intelligence and things like that to solve this problem. So I think you're really going to enjoy his take on aesthetics. He's a very interesting guy, a bit of a philosopher. I think you'll like that too. So please stay tuned and welcome Paul Golding. So welcome back, listeners, to another episode of State of the Art. And we have another really exciting episode for you today. Uh, welcome, Paul Golding. How are you doing today, Paul? I'm good, thanks. So, so Paul, a little background on you. I mean, you've, you're a technologist and an algorithmist, a, a bit of a philosopher, um, you were you literally have written the book on mobile before mobile was a thing. Um, you've designed chips. You know you're you're a, a forward thinker in the fields of AI and blockchain technology and all of this stuff. Um, I'm really curious because you know on paper you're really pedigreed to do anything you want in Silicon Valley. How did you end up kind of getting interested in the art world? Well, uh, when I first moved to Silicon Valley, I. Uh... I met a friend of a friend who was working at, uh, he was the CTO of art.com. And uh, he said that they had some interesting problems they wanted to solve. So I met with him and uh, the kind of uh, reason I was attracted to it is, number one, it was an existing company and they were looking for new ideas. So the kind of context for the work was to create a kind of innovation team or lab, which I've done many times before. And that has its own kind of dynamics, which I find quite uh, enthralling. But um, the actual subject matter itself was interesting because the companies like art.com and indeed most of what people consider art is really decorative art or decor, things that people hang on their wall to decorate with. And so in that sense, it's a universal problem. Uh, You'd be hard pressed to find anyone's home that doesn't have art uh, on at least one of the walls so um, I thought well this is a kind of universal problem with a with you know a scalable problem so in that regard it was very interesting plus I had a sense ahead of time that this was going to require some uh, kind of complex uh, algorithmic work to figure out what's going on in terms of a visual product especially one which is entirely visual like art so I decided to 
you know, start working on the problem. And I spent several years on it, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so one of the things that I find really fascinating as I talk to sort of technologists in this space is, um, you know, I think most laymen kind of are almost defensive of creativity as sort of the the last bastion of, you know, what will be a truly unique human experience. Um, but as someone who actually is deeply versed in sort of the challenges of computing things like creative taste and aesthetics, um, how do you feel about that? What's your response to that? Well, I guess my current position um, is that creativity is still a very uniquely human uh, facet. and. Uh, most likely it's the the last human capacity that could be um, assumed by AI. Um, so I think that uh, there's lots of uh, hope yet for, for human beings. That said, <laughs> that said, uh, it is uh, an ongoing quest of mine since before actually I started to look at art to figure out how can computers augment creativity? Uh, so, you, you know, first of all, you have to get into the realms of what is creativity. And uh, that's probably why I'm also interested in philosophy, because at one level, one could argue that creativity and even something that we think we know well, like human language, is actually deeply mysterious. Hmm. And and perhaps there are certain aspects of it that are impenetrable by AI or or, or human experience in terms of explanatory power. Um, but uh, I still think there's lots of things we can do to augment creativity. But um, you know, if from an educational point of view, if someone was to ask me what should be the outcome of a good education, I wouldn't say uh, good grades. I would say uh, a highly tuned creative capacity. Hmm. Probably a more future-proof uh, way of looking at the world. <laughs> yeah, you can you can teach a computer to get good grades. It's harder to teach them creativity, huh? Uh, exactly. Well, I, I suspect that many students use computers to get good grades. <laughs> right. Yeah, in, in my days, it was looking up essays online that uh, may or may not have been penned by the the researcher, but uh, <laughs> not that I ever indulged. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, when I did my uh, you know undergrad work, uh, there was no uh, web, so right, you know, we had to use libraries. <laughs> um, and you know, when you tell young people today, can you imagine a world where you look things up without Google? It's it's quite a uh, uh, a disjoint experience for them. <laughs> so, so what were you know? You mentioned your that that you were solving some interesting problems at Art. dot com. Can you give me an idea of what some of those big questions were that you were thinking about? Yes. Um, ultimately, you know, there are so Art. dot com are an e commerce business, and they sell only one product largely, and they sell other things now. I think, but that product is is wall art or decorative art. Um, so like any e-commerce company, you're always interested in how do you sell more of it? <laughs> um, and you know, that whole question has its, uh, kinds of patterns, if you like. So you tend to think of funnels and, and how do you get people in the funnel? Um, but once they're in the funnel, let's say it turns out that there are some unique challenges with 
a highly visual product like art. Um, and uh, they're not obvious and um, perhaps very susceptible to anecdotal thinking rather than analytical thinking. Um, one of the problems that presents itself, for example, is that uh, if you ask someone ahead of time what art you want to hang on your wall, they can't often, they can't really tell you an answer. And, and indeed, they struggle to find suitable language that they can convert into a taxonomy that maybe a search engine would understand, uh, especially given that a lot of the taxonomy of art is kind of quite formal. Mm. So, uh, for example, you know, it, it's quite common to encounter someone who might say, I don't like modern art. Um, and then you show them some pictures and they say, wow, I like those. And you're showing them modern art. <laughs> right. Um, so that, that happens a lot. But one thing that was stuck out was uh, there's a, uh, an annual or biannual study done of the decorative art market. And uh, some uh, interview question in there caught my eye, which was, uh, you know, how do you know? Uh, that you like a piece of art and the the answer that everyone could agree upon was i know it when i see it <laughs> uh so um but they cannot describe what they know ahead of time so uh i thought this is interesting and i really kind of set off on a quest to understand qualify and quantify what does i know it when i see it mean um, hope with the hope that at some point that's convertible into something that could be computed. Sure. Um, so largely speaking, it's you could call it the discovery problem, uh, which applies to all products, uh, keeping in mind there's a spectrum of uh, customer intent. One, at one end of the spectrum, there is a very hard requirement that's well known and definable in advance so for example someone might know that they want uh, a movie poster from star wars and they know exactly the one they want so then it's a question of how quickly can they find it is it the right price you know how soon can they get it etc at the other end of the spectrum is i don't know what i want um i just want to decorate my room and that may be very open-ended and hopefully culminate in this, I know it when I see it. So the question is, how do you get them from this kind of open-ended intent to knowing it when they see it? And you can analyze that technically in all kinds of ways. So, you know, I think when probably the model that people are kind of most familiar with when they think about predicting what someone's taste is going to be in that way, um, Probably the Amazon thing is what most people are are most familiar with, and it's generally kind of and well, you probably know this better than me, so hopefully you don't correct me on this. But uh, as far as I understand it, it's basically looking at um, sort of in aggregate. You know, when people buy this, they tend to also buy that. So if there's a lookalike user that kind of looks like a user who bought this and that, then I'm going to recommend that, right? Um, is does that general mm. model work for art? I mean, what are the nuances that kind of makes art a particularly interesting challenge versus any other consumer good? Well, so for that um, technique you're describing to work well, you have to have uh, certain kinds of statistical distributions in the data um, to find good overlaps. And um, one of the 
I guess, differences with art is that um, it's something that's bought infrequently or relatively infrequently. And it's not so common that people will buy lots of art and keep coming back and buying more. So um, it's not like, for example, if someone's using Netflix over a period of time, say a month, you're going to learn quite a lot about their taste. Uh, and then you can then uh, statistically overlay that on terms of other taste profiles. Um, so uh, there's two challenges with the art if the data is sparse. One is getting good results to begin with so you can make meaningful recommendations. But the other is uh, if someone is purely in this kind of open-ended speculative discovery, it's not immediately clear from what they're looking at what it is that appeals to them in mm. that art. So I'll give you an example. Um, perhaps someone clicks on a, a piece of minimalist art that is mostly grey but has a fleck of orange in mm. it. Um, in their mind, and, and we could come on to colour as it's a very interesting vector in this, in the user's mind, they might just be looking for orange art. Hmm. So um, you could say, well, let's find other people who have bought orange art. What might they like? Of course, that would be a very noisy data because uh, as a taste indicator, color alone is very shallow. So you wouldn't want to, someone's looking at minimalist art with a fleck of orange. You show them the picture of an orange Mustang car hmm. merely, merely because it's orange. Um, so uh, if the data is shallow, it's difficult to do. And if you don't really know at this uh, early on in the exploration, which of the N vectors of taste that the customer is uh, gravitating towards, that kind of recommendation engine has its challenges. Um, so like a lot of things in, in uh, machine learning, uh, they get... Uh, exceptionally better the more data you have that is coherent in some mm. fashion um, so if the data is shallow and noisy then machine learning performs quite badly a lot of the time so if i mean if, if color is kind of one vector but as you mentioned you know there's even if you do like orange artwork maybe a mustang doesn't appeal to you as much as a minimalist sort of fleck what are, what are some of mm. the other vectors that that you have found um, sort of predominate people's tastes? Well, uh, that's a very interesting question. Um, there are obvious ones, uh, and the ones that you tend to assume and, and would naturally use are tax, taxonomies um, or you know thematic vectors. So if someone is looking in uh, a particular category of art, say modern art, you might suppose that they're interested in modern art and then proceed to only help them narrow their search with more modern art. Um, the thing there is, uh, first of all, you have to have good data. And um, a lot of uh, uh, problems with e-commerce, generally speaking, and art in particular, is that the art it comes from lots of catalogues. Uh, you know, vendors who supply the images that you are licensed to print. And you can't always rely upon the data being labeled or usefully labeled. 
So you may have plenty of uh, images in your catalogue that are very um, poorly labelled, uh, you know, at which point that kind of thematic pivoting through the data becomes problematic. Mm. But nonetheless, it's a good start. Um, and so long as it's coherent and lacks noise. But the problem is that these categories are quite fuzzy in reality. And the problem with uh, fuzziness, meaning that, you know, you could step through a category that's quite broad or fuzzy and you the to the uh, machine, to the labeling schema, that vector that you're stepping through appears to be coherent mm. from an information point of view. But from an aesthetic point of view, it might be incoherent to the user. And so eventually, to do this properly, properly, one would have to consider some aesthetic vectors in this, uh, you know, this this journey. So, what is it that the user is seeing that is causing some kind of favourable or negative reaction? Um, and so, you know, part of what the work I did was to try and figure out: is aesthetics a computational quantity? Hmm. Uh, which is a non-trivial problem, but an interesting one. So, so what kind of insights did you end up drudging up while digging into that? Uh, well, the first thing uh, yeah, I did was I wanted to know, um, you know, you have to consider all approaches. And when you're in the, the mode of, I guess, innovation and thinking anew, you should also consider, you know, a variety of options that, defy conventions. So, uh, you know, typically you present users with a grid of products. That's a common e-commerce experience. Uh, as And the grid can be configurable, though users seldom configure such things. But I wanted to know in the first instance, the kind of theoretical boundaries of this problem, meaning that if someone says, I know it when I see it, uh, I wanted to know, okay, uh, how quickly can you know it when you see it? Um, that would give an indication for some UX parameters, as in, okay, if I could, let's say, show you 100 images a second, because you can know it when you see it that quickly, then maybe I should consider mm. that. But, and, and under certain conditions, actually. Uh, so, you know, one of the, my colleagues I was working with, uh, Gareth Shippon, who now works at LinkedIn, he designed a horizontally scrolling uh, interface that uh, was more like walking along a museum wall. Uh, and he actually programmed it right down to the metal, you know, in terms of the JavaScript environment. And it, it could swipe ex exceptionally hmm. fast. And, you know, with one swipe, it was possible to go through tens of images hmm. a second easily. So, so we wanted to look at that, and we called it the gist. So the gist means, oh, I get the gist of the image, I like it. And um, that in itself is a deceptive concept, and we can dig into that if you like, because there's the gist of what the eye sees, because it's basically a biological machine that's programmed to look for certain things in the environment. And then there's the real gist, the one we're interested in, which is the aesthetic or taste one, which is it's caught my eye and I know I like it. So I know hmm. it when I see it. 
And the theoretical uh, beginnings for this work was some work done in MIT about how quickly can the human, uh, how quickly can a human recognize images. And it turns out to be about 60 images a second. So meaning that if I was to flash 60 images a second on the screen and then ask you, did you see a picture of a duck? Uh, about 60 images per second, you start to lose the ability to say, yes, I saw the image wow. of a duck. Um, so, you know, we did experiments with grids and flashing images to try and get an idea of how quickly someone could apply that process to seeing something they like. Um, but uh, the problem with that, and this is the problem with, um, you know, any e-commerce grid, is that the eye itself is attracted to things that the eye is programmed to see, which they're called salient objects in the mm. literature. So um, the very obvious example is if you're looking at an image that's entirely grey and there's some colour in the image, like a small red dot, your eye will immediately go to the red mm. dot because, because of the con contrast. Uh, if you're looking at an image and it has a face in it, your eye will immediately go to the mm. face. Um, so uh, one of the things we did is we built a machine. We built some software to do this kind of heat mapping. So, you know, one of the ways you can do it, which is using e-commerce, is you set up a camera and you do eye tracking. You can actually you shine basically infrared into the eye and you can figure out where it's bouncing off the back of the eye, correlate that to <laughs> the front of the eye, and you can get the direction of view. Um, that's now commonly built into, you know, these alienware computers yeah, and things, yeah. so, which I find fascinating. But, um, but, you, but we built a biological um, model. We basically used software and we built a model that predicts where the eye should see by uh, using signal processing or computer vision to find the salient objects in an image. And it worked just as well as eye tracking. And in fact, that's a technique used now in e-commerce heat maps. Hmm. So, um, you know, this was the beginnings of the approach about computational aesthetics, just to figure out how quickly people could see things they liked. Um, and then we went about trying to deconstruct images into what we called their styleness, hmm. uh, which was nothing to do with labels or taxonomies it was merely trying to find visual uh quantities or qualities of an image that we could attribute to a certain style um give you a simple example like um minimalism or busyness mm. so the, the number of objects and edges and angularity how sharp are the angles um uh, things like curviness um uh, things like, um, you know, uh, busyness, uh, a whole bunch of parameters, that many of which we, we ended up inventing because we couldn't find them in yeah. the literature. So in that way, we were able to extract aesthetic vectors. And the hope was that as someone is traversing a series of images, um, we can, first of all, discount for saliency. Um, we can then figure out what the styleness is of the underlying image, and we can also uh, join that with the taxonomic data. 
um, to try and figure out, okay, what is someone really looking at? What what what's a, what, are, what and then what what is appealing to them? Kind of reveal the hidden data, hmm. if you like. So that's that's the kind of theoretical or computational underpinnings for some of the work we did. Hey, everybody, I'd like to pause the episode here for just one second. First and foremost, to give you guys our thanks. We're so appreciative that you guys like what we do and are listening. Uh, We really couldn't do it without you. We love making this podcast, but obviously you have to be there for us to make it. If you're interested in helping us out a little bit more, if you want to go the extra mile, we would appreciate it so much. And there's two ways that you can help. The first, leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. This seems like a little thing. I know everybody's always asking you to do it, but it helps us so much. And more than anything else, it helps people like you find us. So if you find us interesting, other people hopefully do too. The second thing that you can do is let us know what you find interesting. Tell us what you want to hear. Please just reach out to us. Say anything to us. Find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at State of the Art. All right. Thanks so much. And back to the podcast. One of the things that immediately comes to mind is you're talking about sort of the computational aesthetics of what people are interested in. When you look at it sort of from an e-commerce standpoint, is it um, fair or, a, or a, I guess, a profitable question to ask as opposed to um, examining sort of the, the, uh, the cultural influences that might be in a piece of work? In other words... You know, I would think that someone might be as influenced by aesthetics as they are um, what the cultural suggestion of a piece might be, or, you know, simply the fact that they like cats and it's a cat. Yes, uh, absolutely correct. So, um, you know, I'm describing uh, just one uh, angle, if you like, of attack. But when we're talking about aesthetics, there is, um, you know, this is greatly debated, and I'm sure it's been discussed ad nauseum uh, in the literature and maybe on your podcast. But uh, aesthetics uh, has a cultural component because um, someone's uh, ability, or, or rather their their willingness to say they like something, is influenced by culture. Um, and it's even influenced by other psychological factors. There's lots of literature about how easy it is to influence people's decisions. So in terms of the, uh, you know, this is why we have curation. So Hmm. one approach to discovery is not to kind of do this deep computational, um, you know, paradigm I'm describing, although I, I, I want to mention that that's part of a more holistic approach. Um, the other approach is uh, to um, curate, and curation uh, is essentially a cultural phenomenon. Someone is telling you these things belong together. Uh, it, it, it has to be and often is coherent with the um, objectivity of aesthetics. For example, when someone like West Elm curates furniture and decor, it has a coherence. It's not like a just a, you know, a, a nonsensical eclectic mix. Uh, and the only thing tying it together is the curator by name. Uh, they do actually curate tastes. And one of the things that you discover in this work is that people often identify their taste 
in terms of where they shop. So people can easily say, this could be useful as a discovery vector. People can easily say, uh, um, I like Pottery Barn. Uh, I like um, West Elm hmm. um, and, and all the others. I can't, as you can tell, I'm originally from England and I always go to <laughs> think of the shops in England and people just <laughs> right. look at me in a befuddled manner. But you get the idea. Sure. So, so this is a valid approach and it's not a novel one. Uh, and one could even argue that the real theme here is story. Um, and you know, we could get into that. But uh, when you go back to the R, what are people trying to do with the R? And there's this kind of like a curious phrase that um, uh, Clayton Christensen of the Innovators Dilemma background came up with. He talks about, in terms of product innovation, asking the question, what? is the user hiring the product to do? Uh, and that's the real thing that you should go do better of and innovate with. Um, so people, what are they hiring the art to do? I mean, it's not they just want to put it on their wall. It's probably that it's part of some other intent to do with decorating their room, feeling a certain way. Hmm. And so when you look at the feeling aspect of it, the emotional aspect, it turns out that um, and this is something I learned from Color and working with, um, uh, I forget her name. She was the director of the, the Pantone Color Institute. Hmm. She's written several great books on color. Um, the, the, it's similarly with color. If you ask people, you know, uh, what colors do you want to decorate with, they will struggle. But if you ask them, uh, uh, a different question, which is what kind of mood hmm. do you want to create in this room? It turns out that if you give them only about seven answers, possible answers, there's everyone can answer that question. Yeah. So you like, you know, do you want to create a calm mood, an energetic mood? Um, and people can say, oh, yeah, I want my study to be energetic or inspirational, or I want my bedroom to be calm or hmm. romantic. And then uh, because of culture and biology, you can then group a certain set of colors that you could then label as calm colors. Now you have an entry point. And this to me was interesting because most people who are buying wall decor are buying it to decorate with and it's important to understand that they're not buying it per se because there are enthusiasts or they even like the art uh, in in its fullest hmm. meaning and indeed there's something even more curious than that which is that what i discovered is that most people who hang art on their walls have never really looked at the art <laughs> Uh, they, they, it exists in their mind as an object. Sure. Like I know there's a painting there of a vase with some flowers in. And it's, it's actually, when you look at the biology of the eye and things like that and how you see, it's possible they, they never really look at it as anything other than an idea or a perception. Uh, that's a deep subject we could get into. But if you were to go up to a piece of art in anyone's home, um, 
and you were to, you know, bring them right close to the art and then say, hey, did you notice this vase is actually the shadows on it are in purple, even though the vase is green, you know, which is a color scheme that, say, an impressionist might use, but it doesn't make sense. Hmm. They would say, how? Oh, I never noticed that before. And that turns out to be the case for most people looking at most objects. It's not, apart from the very select few who are real art enthusiasts. Yeah. Who actually, it is their job or their passion to look at such things critically. Hmm. Um, so color does turn out to be a very interesting entry point because most people, when they decorate, uh, the, a, a foundation for decorating is often the color scheme. Hmm. So that's why it's an interesting yeah. entry point, and then you can get mood, and then that might help you get further into the art discovery process. It's interesting. I'm looking around the room now and looking at all the things on the walls and asking myself, have I ever noticed that about that? So hopefully our listeners do the same thing because it probably gives you a little deeper appreciation for the art that's on your walls. But I, I'm curious, is there, you know, so you talked about the select few who are um, art enthusiasts, but I'm wondering, is there is there any other sort of personas or customer class of customers um, who does seem to have a better sense for this? Um, well, of course, uh, it it's difficult to break down in the classical sense. Uh, you know, when you look at segmentation and there's various models that are being sort of used or proposed for buying, you know, decorating, um, mostly what happens is is that people tend to segment the population into taste groups, hmm. um, you know, like modern, trad modern, eclectic, uh, and there's all these kind of curious names for them. Um it's not, um, and then within that, you may then have segments where you're generally speaking to uh, um, an audience that has a more uh, discerning taste. Let's say they're they're more self-critical of their taste, they're more self-aware of their taste, and so to describe the um, the nuances of an object and the history of the object. Uh, actually makes uh, is important to them. Hmm. However, there's very interesting work that um, uh, has been done, and uh, in fact, there's a whole body of uh, psychology and philosophy called essentialism, which is to look at when you perceive an object, what actually is the essence of it in your head. Um, and like bottled water would be a good example. I mean, why is it there's so many types of bottled water in the stores from the, you know, the plain <laughs> right. recycled water or whatever to the exotic, uh, you know, Norwegian sparkling, you know, 200-year-old <laughs> well water? Right. Uh, often what people are looking at is not the water. They're looking at what that product says about them. Hmm. And in fact... With water, it's often the case it says about them to them rather than says about them to others. So you drink an expensive bottle of water because you want to feel healthy, sophisticated, uh, you know, a certain type of uh, emotion. But this uh, attaching essences or story to objects um, has an interesting quality when it comes to art in that. Um, 
it turns out that I, I would say nearly everybody, and there's some research, and I did some anecdotal research myself, that if you take a picture um, and you just ask someone, what do you think of this piece of art? And, and, and hoping that they don't know anything about it. Um, they will kind of remark upon it, and they're mostly going by this, I know it when I see it, their, their aesthetic response. Mm. If you then give some people the whole background to the story and the deeper meaning of the picture, either could be actually as the artist uh, intended it and as art historians report it, it could be as some critic has um, interpreted it, it could be made up so long as it's plausible, people's affinity for that object or that art increases. So one of the, again, the vector that I was interested in is how do you add story to product? How do you add story to art? Um, and uh, in particular, one area that we looked at in detail was how to add story to color. Hmm. Um, because adding story to art is one thing, but adding story to color is actually an easier prospect. And by that, what I mean is if you can get people to choose colors, and uh, the, the whole subject of colors is fascinating because it's not just what you see, it's the name of the color that has an influence, hence why hmm. companies like, and the masters of this are Benjamin Moore and the paint guys, right? Hmm. <laughs> you look at their color ranges, there's no paint called just gray. Right. You know, it's like San Francisco fog, or I, I, <laughs> and that might not be a good one. Sure, uh, London fog—that's the name of a tea, actually. <laughs> um, but these uh, kind of beautiful marketing names, these poetic names, they do add uh, a meaning to the colours. And um, if someone picks colours, and then you find colours are resonant with that in the art. Um, we actually made a, a kind of a, a small machine. A, when I say machine, I made a, a, a computer program that could add these elaborate, poetically formed descriptions to the art <laughs> that were saying, oh, you know, you like ice blue and, you know, uh, holy magenta. And we chose this art for you because it has a splash of. Uh, you know, cerulean blue that was found by the Amazonians. Or what, and, and that kind of color dictionary and vernacular is quite easy to construct using a machine. Hmm. But now it gives a label or, or a justification that helps the user to buy the art. And it turns out that not just in art, but in lots of products, if you can give these justifications, uh, it actually helps in, in, in the, in, within the rubric of what you were saying earlier. It's really a cultural indication. Mm. It's a cultural signal that someone somewhere, even if in this case it's a machine, is vouching for what I'm doing and, and, and uh, making me feel good about it. Hmm. <laughs> and so at the end of the day, people just need a little, a little authority to help them make those decisions, huh? Um, uh, yes, yes. Uh, uh, and some of the insights for that come from any company where if you ask, uh, you do analytics on the product support request, uh, you will often find there's a fair contingent of people whose reason for asking a pre-sales question is really to get someone to help validate their decision. Hmm. 
Um, and it's not really, you know, the, 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 the question you ask is a superficial one. Hmm. The, the motivation behind it is, can I feel good about my purchase <laughs> via another human being? Yeah. That's interesting. That makes me think of, I, I forget the name of it, but there's a tongue in cheek rule of the internet that if you, but I think this has actually been studied that one of the fastest ways to find an answer on the internet is to uh, pose the incorrect answer and watch people respond to <laughs> want the sort of self-congratulation of saying you're wrong and I know why. Oh, yes, that's a good idea. So it's a little uh, a corollary. It's not really the same thing, but makes me think of that. Yes, well, it reminds me of a tip that um, I was given by a senior engineer when I when I was first was designing chips, and I was a junior engineer. And um, you know, in engineering, you kind of have this priestly caste. And um, <laughs> uh, if you approach the senior engineers as a junior one, they'll give you lots of like, like sure. flick off answers, i.e., non answers. Because they... <laughs> so, so my friend said. Oh, what you need to do when you speak to so-and-so um, is you have to begin your question by saying, oh, um, so-and-so, you probably don't know the answer to this, but can you? <laughs> and then they couldn't resist telling you. Right. Th threaten the ego and then they're, they're bound to respond. That's funny. Yes. <laughs> so I'd like to zoom out a second because, you know, I, I kind of said at the top of the show, um, you know, you've you've spent a career in a lot of different technologies, and uh, and it's always fun to ask someone who is a bit of a philosopher to kind of look into a crystal ball. So, mm -hmm. um, so I'm very curious what what technologies do you think are you know we we use this word this word disruptive in Silicon mm -hmm. Valley, right? And mm -hmm. de depending who you're talking to, they either uh, get a a, a real smile on their face or they roll their eyes. Right. But, um, but I'm curious what technologies you really see coming down the pike that are, um, really truly innovative that you think really could sort of change the course of how people are interacting with art and creativity on a daily basis. Yes. Uh, so I, I, I begin the answer quite generally because, um, I, you know, I'm not sure who I can assume is listening <laughs> to this, but, um, the, the, the one thing that continues to be the, the fuel of all, so behind the scenes, the fuel of disruption is still silicon. I mean, people forget mm. that because, you know, we call it Silicon Valley, but really it's kind of like, I don't know, something else <laughs> now. Um, but, uh, software, uh, is, um, will be at the heart of any disruption. I mean, it doesn't matter what the subject is. So whether you're a chemist, a biologist, an artist, um, a movie writer, a novelist, at some point or another, software is going to impact on what you're doing. And the power of software is easy to underestimate. And in particular, you know, it's worth pointing out if it's not obvious to people, it may not be obvious. You know, human beings advance because we're social creatures and social learning is an important part of that. So I don't have to relearn everything from scratch. I can borrow previous works of other people. Um, and so software massively amplifies that because people, for a number of reasons, which, you know, have been researched, they tend to write software and then give it away for free, the so-called open source movement. Sure. Uh, or they give their knowledge away for free. 
like on Stack Overflow and these sites. Mm. So the, the continually amplification effect of that, I would say, is, is probably one of these things that if we could measure it, it probably is close to one of these so-called disruptive exponential curves, which are, um, you know, often touted, but I'm, I'm, I'm dubious of. Um, so uh, within that, of course, is then the, the, the field, which is, you know, become known as AI which is actually an old field. I mean, I've been in AI uh, for 30 mm. years now. Um, uh, the reason that AI is now important is mostly because of the vast computational mm. power. Uh, and um, again, uh, well, I haven't mentioned this yet, but that was kind of an accident uh, because the uh, what people discovered was you could use the machines that people were making to make mach- uh, games go faster uh, to process 3D uh, rendering inside of a game, I don't know, like Call of Duty mm. or something. Uh, those machines called uh, graphical processing units, GPUs, uh, were usurped by people who wanted to do other kinds of calculations on them. And kind of, this was a, a kind of yeah. accident. Um, and uh, it's worth pointing out that when it comes to this whole disruption question, the history of most of technology and science is accidental. <laughs> uh, there, is a, there was an excellent book called Accidental Empires. I think it's still in print about the history of Silicon Valley and how you know, uh, accidental it really is. But um, and that's important because it ties back to creativity. And um, I know you asked me what are the disruptive technologies, but I'm going off into a <laughs> philosophical detour. Um, That's exactly what I'm asking for. <laughs> I, okay, okay, yes. So, so um, what, what, what really happens? So a lot, of, a lot is said about the scientific method, you know, and it's kind of like a, a, almost used as an analogy for, for rationalism or rational thinking. But it turns out that the, the front end of that process is what matters. The, the the part where someone, for some reason, they had a creative spark and they thought, oh, I wonder what happens if I chew the leaf of an oak tree <laughs> or whatever. And uh, they go do it uh, or they figure it out and then they, they discover something which science, the scientific method, then can prove or disprove actually has a knowable cause and effect that we can sure. replicate. But the front end to the scientific process is actually creativity, pure creativity. And I think where we go wrong in terms of our ability to discover more disruptive things more often, assuming we want to be constantly disrupted, <laughs> is, is uh, we don't emphasize this aspect of the process enough. Um, and uh, there's uh, Max Planck, I think, has this wonderful quote about science proceeding one funeral at a time, hmm. meaning that uh, there's a lot of dogmatic thinking because such and such a scientist discovered something, and uh, we all kind of follow the on, like on tram lines that way of thinking, and uh, we prevent ourselves from doing the creative part. And it turns out the creative part is very simple, uh, deceptively so. Um, and there's a wonderful quote by Noam Chomsky about this, which is that he says that discovery is the ability to be puzzled by simple things. Hmm. 
and that really is the case. And the the example he gives, which I'll repeat in case people haven't heard of it, is the one of Newton and this discovery of mm. gravity. It's quite profound. But for several thousand years before Newton, uh, it was assumed that objects that fell and went somewhere and steam that rose into the sky were objects going to their Aristotelian natural place. I mean, Aristotle said things move because they go to their natural mm. places. When Einstein, I'm sorry, when Newton, you know, the looked at the apple falling, which may or may not have happened, um, what was his kind of like thought process? Well, he actually asked the question, well, why does that apple move? And uh, it was a very simple question, why does it move? Uh, and because he had discovered already his laws of forces, he said by deduction, it can only be the case that a force must be uh, applied to that object. There is no other answer, as far as we know, about how the universe mm. works. Um, and so that he concluded there must be a force, and yet, controversially, it's invisible. And you have to understand at the time that was a deeply controversial and disturbing discovery. The fact that something could be uh, put into motion without anyone mm. touching it. Yet he was willing to be discovered by simple yeah. things. And, and, and this debate comes into the modern area around creativity and things like AI. Uh, because, um, and you may have heard about this, this great debate. Well, I don't know how great it is, but maybe because I look at it, that actually was between someone like Chomsky and then, say, Norvig in Google about um, the usefulness of AI. And as Chomsky points out, or likes to say, AI is just, you're just making a bigger and bigger shovel to move mm. dirt. Um, you're not actually ever asking the question, how does the visual system really work? And being puzzled by its mysteries, you found a process that can simulate the detection of objects, such as convolutional neural networks. And that is not the same as asking uh, fundamentally why is something the way mm. it is. And the analogy he gives, which is more instructive, is that um, it would be like pointing a camera out of a window and and building a very sophisticated machine learning model over time that can predict what's going to go past the, the window. And so you might predict quite reasonably that, you know, if it's the winter months, we may see clouds. If it's early morning, maybe we'll see nesting birds. So you built a very accurate, has to, this is the point, a very accurate predicting machine, yet that is not physics. Hmm. It has nothing to do with physics and how physicists have discovered the laws of nature. That's what he would call meter reading. <laughs> a physicist reads a meter, it tells you nothing about right. the world. So disruption and disruptive technology is has to be driven by creativity. Um, and so to me, the opportunity or the real excitement will come is if we can find ways to use our computational power to enhance or augment that creative process. That to me is the killer question. Uh, it may be through things like reinforcement learning, which kind of try to tease out underlying rules for things. Maybe you could discover, if you had enough data, the rules of nature, the laws of nature in that fashion. But to me, the disruptive future is 
when we can apply AI to uh, creative problems and then truly amplify disruption. Uh, to what end? I don't know. And that's the, the mystery of the future. Hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Paul, I could I could talk to you for hours about this and hopefully will someday. But for the sake of the podcast, uh, we'll start to wrap it up here. So thank you so much for your time. I mean, um, very interesting, insightful conversations. I mean, this is a very, a very different conversation from talking to an artist who's using technology in their artwork. So, um, and, you know, again, I think you're just in such a unique position given your experiences um, with technology at large and your curiosities around the art world. Uh, you know, I think you're just a, a very uniquely situated person to have these conversations. So thank you so much for taking the time to share some of those thoughts with us. Thank you. But before I let you go, our listeners know that we always do some rapid fire questions at the end of the interview that are just fun getting to know you questions. Not a whole lot of thought, but the idea is to just fire off responses as quickly as possible. So are you up for that? Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, being that you are, uh, among many other things, a bit of an inventor, what invention in the history of technology do you wish you could claim as your own? I guess the printing press. Hmm. Distribution of knowledge. Is this what we're going for? Yes. <laughs> All right. If you could have any superpower, what would it be? Mm. Uh, oh, ability to see the future. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> for, for, for myriad reasons, I like this. <laughs> well, I think I could solve <laughs> anything that way. <laughs> well, g given what's the infinite possibilities of infinite universes. <laughs> yes. Uh, if uh, so, this is this is a topical one for me because uh, my wife and I. Well, my wife just got pregnant. We're excited about that. Mm. So I know you have children. What is one piece of it, of parenting advice that you can share? Uh, to inculcate a deep sense of curiosity in your children. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. 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 I love that. <laughs> and. Last but certainly not least, I like to ask this of all of our British guests. It's very important to me with my interest in in classic rock. Are you a more a Beatles fan or a Rolling Stones fan? Oh, Beatles. Ah, ha, ha. Why? Can you give me a why? Uh, I just think that um, you can't uh, top their um, ability to write catchy tunes. I, I tend to agree with you a hundred thousand percent. So <laughs> if That's it, a big number. If it would have been the Rolling Stones, we would have had words, but luckily you fell on the right side of history. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Paul. Um, it's really been a pleasure. Uh how can people kind of follow along with what you're doing? Um uh, good question, because I I, uh, well, I guess if they go to paulgolding.com, I occasionally blog. Great. Um, and you'll find my Twitter there somewhere. But I'm open to any contact if people want to ask questions or shoot around ideas. I tend to try and help people as much as I can, if possible. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Paul. I hope you have a, a great day. And I really, uh, it's such an exciting chance to get to talk to you. And thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. As always, listeners, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of State of the Art. Thanks so much to Paul for his contribution. Uh, love talking to Paul. Really, really interesting guy. Clearly knows what he's talking about. He's been around the block more than once. Uh, brilliant, brilliant guy. 
If you're interested in learning a little bit more about him or getting in touch with him, please go to his website at paulgolding.com. That's P-A-U-L-G-O-L-D-I-N-G.com. And as always, if you if you like this episode, if you like what we're doing, please rate and review us. Give us five stars on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's one of the most helpful things you can do to help us grow and uh, help other people just like you find this podcast. So thank you so much. This has been another episode of State of the Art.